Welcome to BDO in the Boardroom, a podcast series for board of directors and those charged with governance. Each episode features a topical discussion with board peers and subject matter experts on both trending and timeless boardroom issues, covering a myriad of issues including, but not limited to, mitigating risk in the increasingly digital world, navigating your board career, from landing your first board seat to succession planning in support of the next generation, to other top of mind issues such as ESG reporting, shareholder activism, and the insights we share through the BDO Center for Corporate Governance and Financial Reporting. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. Let's get started. I'm Amy Rojek, Director of BDO Center for Corporate Governance, and I'm really happy to have the chance to sit down today with Tim Moen, Chief Sustainability Officer at Persephone, to discuss his views, observations, and advice for directors in navigating the opportunities and risk landscape of corporate sustainability. Persephone is a global software company that enables organizations and financial institutions to create regulatory grade carbon footprint inventories. That's a way to inventory all the ways in which your company may contribute to the emission of greenhouse gases, including carbon dioxide and methane, generated through its own actions. So along with a focus on climate disclosures, Persephone is a rapidly emerging startup poised to enable massive environmental benefits around the world. Prior to joining Persephone, Tim has had a remarkable career in environmental protection, working at the Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, on regulations to stem toxic air pollution to private industries and big tech, such as Intel, Apple, and AMD. He's also been involved in the U.S. Senate on legislative matters, and he's an author penning the book Changing Business from the Inside Out, which reflects his observations from his time with these tech giants. His most recent position prior to Persephone was serving as the chief executive officer for the most widely used sustainability reporting standards in the world, the Global Reporting Initiative, or GRI, which he focused on his strategy for converging and integrating sustainable reporting standards with financial disclosure. Truly a man ahead of his time in a world that is perhaps finally catching up to where it needs to be directionally. Tim also serves part-time as a member of the faculty advisory group, providing insight, knowledge, and expertise in identifying trends and topics to include in the ESG Competent Board Certificate Program Curriculum. ESG Competent Boards provides professional development and advisory services focused on bringing ESG climate and sustainability insight to boards, investors, and executives globally. And another position that Tim holds is a part-time stakeholder advisor to BASF, a U.S. company that defines its mission to create chemistry for a sustainable future. So (laughs) given Tim's deep experience in sustainability and all the various roles he has held in government, private industry, in standard setting, and now as a C-suite officer of a firm designed to help make reporting on environmental and climate change factors feasible, and attainable for organizations. I'm really excited to dive deep into the current areas of business and regulatory focus that are top of mind for board members. So Tim, welcome to BDO in the boardroom. Thank you, Amy, and thank you for that great introduction. It's my pleasure to be with you today, and I'm I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Well, it's easy to invite a guest with uh, the history and background that you have. So really excited to hear your thoughts and love to know what drives your passion for sustainability and how you found yourself in all the related roles. But I think as we have discussed previously, perhaps, you know, first and foremost in elementary, but I'm convinced that there's still confusion about what sustainability is and what ESG is. So perhaps you could define that as a lead in. That would be great for our audience. 
Well, it's a great question to start with. You know, we always say start at the beginning and, and I will. Um, you know, I'm one of these oddballs that sort of, you know, started in the same field and never left. Uh, and now after more than 35 years working in this space, I've kind of seen it morph and change and grow. But if I go all the way back to the roots, you know, uh, back then it was uh, environmentalism uh, that really drove me as a, as a young person and uh, sort of set out my career choices and my educational choices before that. Uh, and I've always stuck with it. But over the years, what's happened is that in, instead of becoming a, a province of government to, to regulate industry, it sort of crossed over into the mainstream of corporate responsibility. Uh, that was a term that would have been an oxymoron when I started. Corporates were not responsible. They were regulated. Uh, and so now we have crossed that over into what is essentially uh, a, a commonplace uh, practice within almost every corporation across the world. So that's where we find ourselves. And then as this matured, we saw this word sustainability. And now we use the, the, the abbreviation ESG or environmental, social and governance uh, creep in. Um, and it's probably one of the most used but least understood terms that we have out there. And I always say, and I say this in my book, if you really want to find out what sustainability means, read the GRI, the Global Reporting Initiative, as you mentioned in the introduction. The GRI sets out 34, 34 topics that companies can report on to demonstrate their sustainability credentials. And most companies do report on these. In fact, we know that now 92%, 92% of the S&P 500 companies are voluntarily disclosing this kind of information on an annual basis. And so we've really seen that progression, that, that maturity curve, if you will, from the kind of regulated to the voluntary to where it's really common practice defined by GRI and now other standards for companies to incorporate sustainability values, to manage them and to report on them every year. Makes sense. It makes sense. So again, You've had an illustrious career. You've headed the organization that you just mentioned in terms of you know, building sustainable standards for reporting for companies to follow and share their you know, activities with the world. And you know, then we're looking at the progression from sustainability and, and corporate social responsibility to now we're looking at commonplace in companies. And I, and I think that's a great, a great place to, to launch from because what we're seeing, especially in our client base in the U.S., where the rest of the world was probably a bit ahead of companies here in the United States, to some degree, in terms of taking action and doing more reporting, we're seeing a much broader interest from both our client base, as well as regula regulators and institutional investors and the whole gamut. So I think there is another perceived knowledge gap, however, in what ESG means to you know, me and my company today, if you will, and what it may mean in the near future. So maybe spend a little bit of time discussing your thoughts on that. That's a great question to build on the introduction because I, you know, in all the years I've ever worked on this uh, area, I've never seen it as dynamic as it is right now. Uh, and, and why is that? It's, it's because in, instead of environmentalism and, and social concerns just being uh, the province of activists or corporate responsibility, all of a sudden, it's kind of moved across a threshold into the mainstream of global commerce. 
And that is because investors and capital markets have all of a sudden understood that the issues of sustainability have financial implications. And they often dictate the risks and increasingly the opportunities that, that companies have from a business point of view. And so as these issues have really risen into that, that you know, risk and opportunity space, you've seen them get incorporated into increasingly regulatory mandates and new standards for reporting. And so recently we've seen that shift, uh, an example, um, very, very real, made very real by um, uh, the biggest uh, asset manager, the biggest investor on the planet, BlackRock. Uh, BlackRock is very much in the news these days. They manage over 10 trillion US dollars uh, and their CEO, Larry Fink, often, uh, well, once a year, writes a letter to the CEOs that they invest in. And that's just about all companies in the world. Uh, and, and basically says, if, if, if uh, those companies don't align their practices with uh, sustainability, specifically in this case, climate change disclosure and management, then uh, BlackRock will vote against them. And last year, BlackRock voted against management in, in record numbers. Uh, famously, uh, back in May of last year, uh, voting against ExxonMobil's management uh, to impanel three new board directors that are climate, uh, climate activists, essentially, on the board of ExxonMobil. This is unprecedented, but it's an example that kind of shows you the shift that I'm talking about. Instead of just being a nice-to-do, instead of being a, a regulated compliance activity, all of a sudden, mainstream investors, and you don't get any more mainstream than BlackRock, are demanding this kind of information. Capital market regulators are, are paying attention and you're seeing a whole slew of new regulatory activity that is going to follow suit. I think you, you raise an interesting point because it isn't just the largest institutions anymore. Your, your example on Exxon was really kind of compounded by the voice of the little guy, Engine One, who's the tiniest, one of the tiniest shareholders who really had some problems with how the management of ExxonMobil was running their business. And they're the ones that kind of championed and pulled in the Black Rocks and others to make, you know, an effective move in that regard. So I think what we're seeing, too, is a shift from certainly everyone pays attention to the largest asset managers. But now others in that the investment circle are getting a louder voice. And I think it behooves companies, particularly board members, to understand their shareholder base and understand broadly what what's important to them and make sure they're connecting on those valuable points because some of the points that you know activists or or you know special interest groups that are bringing up may or may not be relevant to your earlier point about financial materiality to the business and if the company is able to explain that in a way you know we're we're heading into shareholder meeting season so highly sensitive to engagement for boards so if there's a way to kind of hit that off at the pass, I guess, and, and really engage with investors so that they understand the relative importance and value that it means to the company and, and, and open a dialogue on that. I think there'll be a lot more um, connective points to that and, and investors will be, feel empowered that they're being heard. Just my two cents. Such a very important point <laughs> you're making. I, I you know, I, I, as you said in the introduction, I worked for over 20 years in the private sector and so I'm a veteran of uh, dozens of shareholder resolutions. And I've seen a maturity curve there as well. You know, when it used to be some, you know, 
tiny activists that you know wanted to change your behavior to now where we're getting um, you know it started with uh, large single digits votes for these resolutions, then double digit votes, and now you're seeing these resolutions actually pass against the wishes of management. So what's the key to that? It's as you said, it's engagement. Um, you know, when I uh, worked in the private sector, I, I was very proud that uh, I had a thousand percent batting average in getting those resolutions withdrawn. Uh, and the way you do that is you sit down with the filers and understand what their issues are. Because often what their issues are are, are things we're already working on. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're actually aligned philosophically with some of these issues and we can actually uh, negotiate a, a good settlement that withdraws the resolution. And that I think is a much better way than trying to ignore and swat away these you know, smaller activist shareholders. And the last thing I'll say is that the word activist is kind of misplaced now. Um, I heard, um, I heard the, the leader of Engine One speak at a, a TED event in uh, Scotland this year. And when he was up on the stage, he was with the CEO of Shell Oil, he was speaking the language of business. Uh, he was saying that, you know, in the case of ExxonMobil, uh, they had a very large valuation that went to almost nothing uh, over the period of time that that um, that Engine One was invested in them. And, and it's because they, they chose not to uh, invest in renewable energy. Now, obviously, there's there's some differences now with the price of oil, et cetera, et cetera. But the trend lines are still there. And, you know, when you're really looking at these issues and engaging with those stakeholders, you'll find that, in fact, like I said before, uh, you, you probably share more in common than you do apart. So engagement is really the answer uh, to avoid these kinds of uh, very public vote against management, high drama events like we saw with ExxonMobil and Engine One last year. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. One, one of the other areas that I think you know companies are struggling with, I think particularly, well, I classify companies as really just starting to think about where they should be heading from a sustainability standpoint, where the risks and opportunities lie to companies that have kind of thought through that they're further down the path. And now they're, they're wanting to really embed that in their corporate strategy. And so you have the benefit of, you know, if you think about a startup company that can embed that in from the start, which I think is a great approach for companies in that um, opportunity, but there's so many companies that are so established. How do you, you know, turn that wheel? Because you've invested so much time and effort in your corporate strategy, and now you're recognizing that, okay, we need to change course. And especially in the age of disruption that we find ourselves, how do we do that? What What do you think that boards need to understand with respect to that, and what is their role in, in doing that in, in the, the context of sustainability? I think that's a, a, one of the toughest questions out there. If you uh, read the Larry Fink letter that I mentioned earlier from 2022, you know he says the next 1,000 unicorns, that is companies worth a billion dollars or more in uh, market value, uh, will not be social media companies, they'll be climate tech companies. So to your point, it's easier to start with these vision, this vision and, and strategy from the beginning than it is to try and reinvent a company that's already established based on the current fossil fuel economy. However, that reinvention is what is required. Um, there's a famous book that I, I really love the, by Clayton Christensen called The Innovator's Dilemma about disruptive technologies and how difficult it is 
or established players to see the disruption that is coming from all the major trend lines. But that is, in fact, what is happening now as the world inexorably moves to a low carbon economy, maybe not fast enough for some, but that is, that is definitely a trend line. What do you do if you're sitting on the board of an ExxonMobil or a Shell Oil or a Chevron or any, any company that kind of makes its living through creating fossil fuel energy? Uh, I think you have to look at it from a strategic point of view. You know, if the future is going to be manifest through renewable energy, how do we as energy providers invest in that? And what's the right cadence? What are the right choices? Um, these are hard things to do because, again, you're used to making all of your revenues and profits from a certain uh, business, and you have to blow that up and start over again. Most companies aren't used to that. But the key is to understand the core competency of the company. Uh, if your core competency is to uh, create and sell energy, then how can you do that differently? Whatever that core competency is, you have to look at it in the lens of the trends that are happening now, and then have the discussion about how you can do that core competency differently. It's not changing your stripes. It's changing how you deliver what you're good at in a different way. When you are... Um heading up GRI and looking at some of the companies that were embracing the reporting standards. I mean, it's one thing to report on something, but going through that process, and I'll put my, my auditor's cap on for a moment. When you go through that process about truly thinking about your operational results and how you're going to present them publicly, the, you know, the narrative, if you will, that you're going to include around the numbers so that they're understandable. As people go through that process in adopting reporting standards, GRI or otherwise, um, what have you seen kind of the, maybe the, the light bulb effect, if you will, going through the minds of the companies as they're working through that? Because I think that's a really good way for companies to really get their arms around where we are today and where we want to be. I think it's very informative. What do you think? I, I truly believe in the power of transparency, and I've seen it throughout my career many, many times, uh, lots of different examples. But, you know, the old axiom, you manage what you measure, comes into play over and over again. Um, so, you know, the, the power of standards like GRI and what's happening now in terms of the international financial reporting standards, IFRS, developing now sustainability standards is, is undeniable uh, because once companies have to deliver a report that says, you know, this was our uh, total greenhouse gas emissions, for example, or our diversity profile or any number of sustainability issues, then all of a sudden the light is shown on those issues. And that creates a whole conversation internal to the company about the management systems that exist around that issue to essentially improve performance. Uh, and that's the beginning part. Then I've seen companies go from tracking trends year over year, you know, what was it last year? What is it this year? Looking at benchmarks, you know, who's best in our industry, who's best overall, and then starting to set goals. And you're seeing a lot of these goals now in the form of net zero goals. Uh, that is, you know, companies that are saying their net carbon emissions will be zero by some date in the future. Uh, I think over a third of the Fortune 500 now has set a net zero goal. Uh, so these are these is this is the maturity curve that you see with the power of transparency, which is driven by uh, these standards. Uh, 
Um, unfortunately, there's been a lot of confusion in the disclosure standards world over time. And I certainly uh, was on the front lines of that when I was with GRI. But what we're seeing, thankfully now, is a consolidation of many of the different disclosure standards that are out there for sustainability reporting under this newly formed International Sustainability Standards Board. Um, the key point to note is that that new Sustainability Standards Board is part of the financial standards organization. And so no longer will sustainability reporting sort of be this separate 100 page report with a lot of pre pictures of children planting trees. Now it's gonna be an integrated audited and insured disclosure that will be part of your financial statements. That really raises the level and it even puts more attention on the management systems to produce performance for those issues. Yeah, and I'll, I'll pick up on the management systems because I think that that's a challenge where, you know, I, I liked your example on the power of transparency that drives and, and trend, looking at trends and benchmarking and then going on to your own goal setting. But how do you do that unless you have the integrity of the data to support that? And I think for many companies, that becomes an aha moment when they start thinking about well, how do we go about collecting all this information that we may or may not have been collecting previously? What does that need to look like? What investments do we need to make? What resources do we need? Who should be doing that? Kind of laying out the rules and responsibilities is a, an enormous task for many companies, and some are trying to do that in-house. Many are looking out, outside of that for advisors and partners to help them with all of that. Um, case in point is, you know, looking at your climate footprint, right? So your 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 carbon footprint and making the commitments that you're just, you know, you just spoke about a moment ago. I mean, you're putting something out in the future of a net zero by 2030, by 2050. Well, that that work has to start yesterday because that is an enormous undertaking to understand for many companies. What is that footprint? Where are all those? You know, how am I impacting? What are all the things that I have to think about? Can you can you talk a little bit about that and, and where companies are going for help in that regard? Yeah, it's an excellent point. And it really goes to, you know, from a personal standpoint, why I decided to join a startup after a long career with large institutions, global institutions on sustainability. And the, the, the reason is the answer to your question, because, you know, frankly, the tools that we've had and I, I can say this from firsthand experience, to measure and manage uh, sustainability issues have been really, really poor. Um, and at the top of everybody's list in terms of the broad rubric of sustainability is climate change. Uh, climate crisis is real, it's getting worse. Uh, companies have a very big role to play in mitigating uh, the climate crisis. And, and that's why we're seeing so many of these ambitious goals being set. But behind the goals, as you accurately point out, there needs to be a robust system of measurement and management that hasn't existed. Uh, and so the promise of Persephone is developing the ERP or the Enterprise Resource Platform uh, for carbon accounting. Uh, there's a difference between accounting and disclosure. You know, we've, we've been talking about reporting or disclosure. That's actually the end of the cycle. At, at some point, you actually have to count uh, what your greenhouse gas impacts are. And if you look across the 750 pages of the greenhouse gas protocol, which is the, the sole accounting 
platform for greenhouse gas emissions, you see that it's quite complex and it incorporates the entire value chain. Uh, and so by pulling all of this in, it's kind of like the analogy I would use to TurboTax, right? The, the, the tax code is very complex. Uh, TurboTax pulled it all in and, and asks you a series of sort of easy questions that once you fill out those questions, you get your tax forms filled out. It's the same with greenhouse gases. Very complex accounting procedures. We pull all that into to world-class uh, leading edge information technology, and we can ask the clients a series of basic questions about their transactions and pro provide a, a, a greenhouse gas uh, footprint. This is something that's absolutely required, not only for compliance, but more importantly, to manage the greenhouse gas impacts of large companies, which is really where we want to go. We don't want to do this just as a reputational matter, just as a tick the box compliance matter. We, we need to make progress on these issues. And the only way you make progress is with good accountability measures. Agreed. And, and I think that's where many people are struggling from. I think, you know, you can have maybe climate's a better example because you can really manage those those numbers and, and if you're setting a target, it's it's how the, you're hitting those milestones to get there. So the KPIs with respect to, to climate may be not easier, but maybe a little bit more tangible to understand and, and compute. But we've been primarily speaking about climate. So I'd really like your thoughts on kind of the next big bucket in this whole exercise around human capital management. And I know you're you're not a fan of the word human capital. So maybe you can, we can pick up there. Well, the, the reason I'm not a fan of the, that terminology is humans are not capital. Uh, you know, we, we used to have the word human resources. And I'm like, ah, that's also kind of rough. Humans are humans, right? Um, we now, uh, most companies use the word people operations, which is probably a little bit better. Uh, but, you know, people are, in fact, human beings, and we have to treat them that way. However, as the pandemic has shown us, uh, the issues around human beings in the workplace are central to business success. Uh, and I think that's why most people agree after we're sort of done with climate, as climate has integrated into the mainstream of global commerce now, as we've discussed, uh, the next set of issues will be under this, this broad header of human capital management. And it includes a lot of things from very basic measures that we're all very familiar with about health and safety, uh, you know, basic labor conditions in the workplace to Diversity, inclusion, equality, uh, those kinds of issues that um, have increasingly been correlated with business success. And I would note that uh, the NASDAQ, one of the largest capital markets in the world, has now issued a guideline for board diversity. Uh, and I, I think you're going to see more and more of those kinds of uh, interventions uh, to check whether or not companies have been serious about diversity not just in terms of counting heads, but making the heads count in creating a environment where people are, are feel safe and free to speak their minds and to bring their full selves to work and to contribute. Uh, studies have shown over and over again that those kinds of environments lead to employee engagement, which leads to business success. And I think investors are clued into that. And I think that's why it'll be the next set of issues that will kind of cross that threshold into the mainstream. Yeah, agreed. And and I think, you know, if we're just speaking right from the U.S.'s stance on this, we're obviously all anxiously awaiting both rulemaking around climate change standards, which could be imminent, 
my understanding is, you know, within the first quarter, certainly of, of 2022, um, but then, you know, either similar timeframe or shortly thereafter, the SEC will also be focusing on expanding their requirements around human capital disclosure, which my understanding as well is it's, you know, if, if Chairman Gensler has his way, is going to cover a broader area of topics on workforce statistics and all of the things you just mentioned. So I, I think that's going to be something that, you know, many companies are anticipating already, um, and then they're already thinking about it. If, if they're getting ahead of themselves and, and preparing for this type of disclosure, which could be pretty broad, that they'll have to understand all the capabilities to gather that information, to verify that information, because now we're talking about it going into a public filing that will that does fall under financial statement auditing and, and other things. So, so that'll be a very interesting, interesting turn of events um, once that comes out. And they've obviously already made significant strides in doing that already with building in regulations prior to that and reminding companies about climate dis climate change disclosure that was already in place, but that perhaps companies weren't really following to the, to the letter of the law. So um, one of the things I, that I wanted to talk about, and, and you picked up on this earlier, was the shift from reputation and brand to strategic and business imperative. I think you, you had said that earlier about this isn't just about a branding thing for the company or a reputational risk, but it's it's becoming the norm to be baked into your business. Can you expand a little bit on that? Sure. Um, I write a lot about this in my book. I think the practice of corporate responsibility sort of you know, grew from um, environment, health, and safety in many departments, public affairs, and other companies. Uh, however, you know, it, it became kind of a fixture in many large corporations, but its primary purpose was to build a brand, to build the reputation of the company. And when that is your primary purpose, I think that sort of skews how the organization is, is, um, is situated within the company and the things that it does. Uh, and it, there's nothing wrong with this. I think that a lot of progress has been made under the broad header of corporate responsibility. And I, again, firsthand experience working at big companies have seen that. The difference now is, as you pointed out, when, when some of those efforts are, are now going to be pulled into corporate financial statements, you've, you've really dramatically raised the, the scrutiny and the liability associated with those disclosures. Uh, they, they not only have to be timely because they have to fit into uh, a filing that is required by a certain date, but they have to be um, audited and assured, as you point out. Um, and they have to be presented in a certain format that is uh, acceptable uh, to investors, often with digital tagging that makes it accessible uh, through machine reading, machine learning. Um, all of those things have not actually been worked out before. Uh, there's a few companies that have done this with their climate disclosure, but very, very few. Uh, and so as the SEC and other capital markets move forward with regulations requiring these kinds of disclosures, there's, there's a, a whole slew of activities that have to go on to back that up. What that means internal to a company is a bit of a culture clash, right? So there, there are folks out there, as I mentioned, that have been working these issues for a long time. They don't often talk to the CFO department that's filing the financial statements. Uh, and so now these folks have to come together uh, and, and really figure out what are the things that aren't being done now that need to be done 
and how do they take the efforts they've usually had for many, many years and turn them into financially financial statements that, that pass muster? Um, that's what's going on right now. And it, I'll tell you, it's a bit of a mad scramble uh, because many companies, like I said, are not incorporating ESG statements into their financial reports, and they're going to have to. I, I agree with you there. I think, and the rigor, the rigor around the control environment, again, with my auditor hat on, that financial reporting is held to, particularly for public entities where you have, you know, SOX requirements and, and other things. That that is, you know, an adventure on its own, right? And what you made another comment that I think is pertinent for our board audience is really understanding what the company is already doing internally. Because like you said, there are a lot of folks within the management levels or you know, below the senior management levels that are already working on all of this information, sharing it, whether it's on the website, whether it's in a separate report, um, whether it's in recruiting materials for you know, future employees. But there's a lot of work being done that may not rise to the level of the board. And so inquisitive board members, I think that's for, for folks beginning this journey, that's the first place to start is asking, where, where are we already amassing information related to X, Y, and Z? Where do we go for that? Who's, who's responsible for that? What level of management is overseeing that? And then starting to build from there. Because I think there's, in, in many cases, there's a lot more being done than maybe is reaching the board's knowledge. So I'll just that's exactly right. In, in my there. history, in my history, I used to brief the board, you know, once a year, you know, about the time we were ready to issue our sustainability report. Um, you know, so so your point is, you know, start from wherever you are. And, and typically that is some sort of sustainability disclosure that really hasn't, you know, got the rigor to pass muster as an integrated financial statement. And then, you know, smart board members start to ask the questions about what, what are the gaps? Uh, who should be involved? Uh, what are the checks and, and balances that need, you know, that need to happen before you know, we can sign off on these statements? Uh, and then the real magic happens after you go through sort of those uh, you know, compulsory compliance-driven questions is what do we do with this information? You know, are we just putting it out there because we're required to? Or does it lead to some insight about the company's risks and opportunities going forward. That's where the real magic happens. And I think that's what is driving all of this. That's what you know, BlackRock statements are all about and the regulations are all about. Um, but there's a lot of work to get there. But finally, we're getting there and it's really being driven by investor interests and the follow-up, the regulations. Uh, so it's a very exciting time. Agreed. So. What are additional questions that we've perhaps not addressed yet that you're hearing from boards um, and maybe best avenues for boards to educate themselves, their fellow directors, as well as their management teams? Because as we, we just discussed, this is a rapidly changing environment that they're uh, active participants in or at least expected to be. Yeah, I think it comes down to, uh, you know, when you take a step back and you look at a, a corporation, um, you have to ask yourself um, a few questions. You know, what, what is the purpose of our company? And a lot of folks have been writing about this, Paul Pullman and others, about stakeholder capitalism. Uh, even the Business Roundtable said, you know, it's not just about shareholder primacy anymore. So I think that true gut check about the purpose of a corporation, not just for next quarter or the next year, but for the long term. 
that that's part of it. And then the second part of that, once you've had sort of this you know blue sky discussion, um, is, is what I call a materiality assessment of, of all the various issues that are out there. We can't cover all of them, and corporations are not nonprofits; they're for-profit institutions. So when you really look at what's important to the company, what's important to the world around the company, you know, do a two-by-two two matrix. What's in that top box? What are the things that that we as a company should be leaning in on? And that should guide all the things going forward, all the management systems, the policies, the disclosures, the accounting, all the things we've talked about. But it really is that kind of broader thinking that, that needs to take place in the boardroom. Um, and it needs to get away from this, this kind of reputational check the box, go get us another award or a headline or a ranking uh, kind of discussion, which I think we're all very familiar with. That's the kind of change that I think really needs to happen in the boardroom. And it takes a little bit of knowledge, some education. You mentioned competent boards earlier. There's, there's several programs like competent boards that are out there doing that education that I think are incredibly important. Um, but also it takes a little courage, right? So board members typically are former CFOs or CEOs, and, and they're not likely to raise their hand and say, well, I'm a, a tree-hugging tree, tree hugging progressive and I wanna change the company around. It takes a little bit of courage to raise these issues in a board setting, um, but with that education, with the courage driven by the current state of the world and the trends going forward, I think it's an important conversation. Yeah, very well said. Very well said. And and I I take your point on, you know, the companies, fortunately, are are becoming fewer and, and more far between in terms of the inquiries that we're getting. But the companies that approach and say you know, what, what can I, what is the easiest thing that I can do, the lowest hanging fruit I can pick off the tree to get my rating elevated? And the, the question then becomes, well, you know, what is concerning you about your rating? And, and kind of like, let's, let's unpeel that onion and kind of dial back into how is this impacting your business? Is it because you're, you know, what's the fear factor here and how do you, how do you digest all of this? So I think it's really nice to see that companies are now looking at this as much more opportunistic. How can we use this information that we're seeing all around us, whether it's dialoguing with our shareholders, investors, institutional investors, proxy advisors, the regulators, the, com- the customers, our employees, how do we take all this information and prioritize where we can improve our company and reap benefits and opportunities in driving our profitability and, and the growth and sustainability of our company. And I think those are the conversations that I'm really excited to see are really starting to happen and grab hold in many of the boardrooms around the ESG topic. Not that they've not always been happening. I think there's just much more of a, a fuller view, if you will, of the company at the board level. I think that's exactly right. And you mentioned ratings. And so I think it, it bears just a bit of discussion because um, actually in today's responsible investor, um, you know, several of the capital market regulators are going to start looking into the ESG ratings. Uh, and there's there's been a lot of press lately about the conflict of interest that these uh, ratings organizations have because they often advise companies on how to improve their ratings as well as uh, provide the ratings investors. Um, that is an area that I think will will be cleaned up. Uh, IOSCO has already mentioned uh, that they're working on that. Several of the capital market regulators are already working on that. Um, but the main message to boards is 
uh, if you're sort of dictating your entire strategy on the ratings, you're probably not doing the right things because the, the ratings organizations are often not very transparent and they, they add things up in very strange ways. However, you know, you do have to pay attention to that because your investors care about it. Uh, it should not drive your strategy, though. Your strategy, as you were saying, should be viewed on a business value point of view, which is, you know, manifest by all the different things that are material to the company that really can drive value by looking out for people on the planet. It's, it's that lens that's really hard to, to keep focused on, but it's so very important. Well, I, I think we'll we'll end on that note because that's a high note. I really want to thank you, Tim, for your insights and being with us today. And thank you to our audience. And like everybody to stay tuned for our next episode of BDO in the Boardroom. Thank you very much, Amy. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. Thank you for listening to BDO in the Boardroom. Past episodes and related insights are available at BDO.com slash BDO Boardroom. Or you can go to iTunes or Spotify to rate, review, and subscribe. The views expressed by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of BDO. For more information on the BDO Center for Corporate Governance and Financial Reporting and the resources we provide, visit BDO.com slash BDO Knows Governance.